I have to confess, in the last uh, gathering, I got so excited. Can I, are these lights all the way up? I'm sorry. They're good? Okay, thank you. My eyes are getting worse, I guess. Uh, I have to confess, as I got to verse 10, I got so excited that I just busted and kind of kept on going through the next few verses. Like, wait, we're covering that next week, so I had to back up a little bit. So, if you see me approaching the stop sign and, I, and I'm not letting off steam, you got to put up the stop sign for me like you're the third base coach of the Dodgers, right? Hold me back, make me slide into third. So 2, uh, 1 to 10, God's word says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Uh, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes, hear this, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who do believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, hear this church, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. We're kind of shifting gears here as we enter into the second chapter of First Peter. We begin to see the application of the gospel in our lives as it pertains to the church and to our families and to uh, our interaction with the workplace and also with the government and the authority of the government. Last November... Uh, my family drove to northern Michigan. We have some friends up there, and so we drove up to northern Michigan for uh, Thanksgiving to spend some time with them. Uh, they live in the small town of Alpena, which is right on the shores of Lake Huron, a pretty, like, way up there north, northern wildernessy area of Michigan. Nobody in their right mind who actually likes sun and warmth would ever live there. But it's a beautiful place to visit, right? Lake Huron, if you've ever looked on a map, is called one of the, it's one of the great lakes. It's this massive lake. When you look out on it, it's almost like looking across the ocean. You can't even see land on the other side. It's huge. Beautiful, beautiful lake. And with the cold temperatures and, and the shoreline of this lake is, is incredibly rocky, the water, unlike the waters here in Kentucky that are usually brown, uh, is actually clear, crystal clear. You can see down to the bottom as you uh, are on the shoreline. And so one day we went out with uh, my friend's family. Uh, they have kids that are in similar age range as our kids. And we went out and we went hiking and we went to this old abandoned uh, rock quarry. And we're hiking around on the, on the hills of gravel there and looking out on the lake. And it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous day. And we, we walked down 
uh, and approached the water. There was this old abandoned like shipping dock, big giant dock. And we walked out as the, the dock was kind of falling apart. And the kids, of course, were at a rock quarry, picked up stones, and they went out uh, on the shipping dock, and they started to drop them into the water. And as they splashed into the water, it created these ripples going out. We call those, uh, they, they fan out in concentric circles, okay? Concentric circles are a, a little circle, and then as the ripples go out, they get larger and larger and larger. But they all have that same size that go out. And I was looking at those, and, and it reminds me of, as we approach this passage, and for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the ordering that God has for our lives as Christians within a Christian worldview. We're, we're ordered in a way where we see God's authority placed in concentric circles, in ripples that flow out of our life, beginning first with the family. Uh, we'll actually conclude this three-week section with family life. Uh, Peter teaches us on family life, marriage, Uh, what that looks like in a Christian worldview in the last week. So that's the innermost circle. And then it ripples out from there uh, from our greater family. Our greater family is our church family. We're going to look at the church this week, what it means to be a healthy church. Uh, And then the ripples go out further, the workplace, the influence of our Christian worldview on the workplace. And then the last sphere of authority is that of the government that God has placed over us. And we're going to look at what uh, Peter has to say about that. That'll actually be next week. But this week we come first to the church, the local church, a healthy church. And so we're going to look and see what Peter has for us that we can draw from this text that informs us on what a healthy church looks like in a Christian worldview. It brings us to our first point. A healthy church is a church that craves the truth and lives the truth. A healthy church is a church that craves the truth and lives the truth. Peter says this in verses 1 to 3. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The first part of the passage that we will focus on, actually, in these first uh, three verses is going to be verse 2 and 3. We'll circle back around uh, to verse 1, because I think verse 2 and 3 informs verse 1. It actually is, is in kind of reverse order. And here, church, I want to invite you in. The context is important, as, as it always is, in this passage in speaking to what, what Peter is getting at when he discusses this pure spiritual milk that infants crave. And so he begins this section with the word so. Okay, if you have, we read from the ESV, but if you have the, the New International Version, you'll notice that the word there is therefore. Okay, anytime you see these types of words, therefore or so, we talked about last week, it's pointing back to something that's guiding us now into this passage. So we have to kind of hit the, the reverse on the cassette tape. You guys remember cassette tapes, right? Hit, hit rewind. We're going to scoop back into chapter one so that we can understand why Peter here is saying so, because it's going to inform this section. If we look back to verse 23, that gives us our first clue for verses 2 and 3 in chapter 2. He says this in verse 23, 
He says that we have been born again by the imperishable. Okay, and then he defines the imperishable. He says it's this, the living and abiding word of God. Okay, the Bible is what Peter's getting at. And so we begin with this truth. He says, so, and in light of the living and abiding word of God, the first mark of a healthy church, the first truth, the first application we can draw out of this passage, the first mark of a healthy church is this, is one that craves the truth. And when I say truth, I mean big T truth, the Bible. That is the word of God, scripture. We draw craving from the figure of speech that Peter uses here. He says, like infants hungry for milk, the church, that is God's people, are to crave the word of God. Scripture. Have you been around a hungry infant before? (laughs) What happens when they want food? They're going to cry. They're going to scream. They're going to search around. A baby's appetite is, is insatiable until what? Until such a time as they're fed. Feed me, mom, right? Peter uses this illustration. I think, I think it's fitting because an infant, again, a, an infant is going to cry until they are fed. It's the same way, church, that we should be craving the word of God, that we are crying out until we approach his living and abiding word, until we are fed. Feast on the word of the Lord. The word of God is the centerpiece of our worship gathering. We gather every Sunday to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the centerpiece of our worship will always be the Bible. Will be the proclamation of the word of God. In this passage, it's pointed out that that craving milk for that infant is a good thing. He rounds out the section with a focus on, on this craving coming because the church has, in fact, he says, tasted that the Lord is good. Christians are transformed in, in such a manner that they, they have tasted that the Lord is good. And so they crave the milk that is the word of God, nourishing them and helping them to grow up. I don't, I'm not really fond actually of the, the English Standard Version's rendering of verse 3 when it starts out with, it says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I believe it actually should be because, because you've tasted that the Lord is good, you will crave the word of God. Because if you haven't tasted that the Lord is good, it makes no sense that you would crave the word of God. In reality, church, the Bible makes little sense if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit of God driving you back to His Word. It's the goodness of of Him guiding you that you do have that appetite for Scripture, that appetite for the Word. Circling back around now to verse 1. The result of of a craving for truth, the truth of the, the Word of the Lord is then now a truth that is lived out. Okay, so we don't just soak in, soak in the truth now that the truth is lived out. 
But where is it primarily lived out of? Or at? Or where? Where do we live in light of the truth of the Word of God? If we circle back again, remember that word so, or therefore, we go back to verse 22 in chapter 1. Peter gives this instruction. Having purified your souls... Uh, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, he says this, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Who is the audience that Peter is talking to? It's the church. It's the body of Christ. And he's saying that we would love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's talking about these things now being played out in the body of Christ, a, a healthy church craves the truth, and lives out the truth in their life. And we begin by living out the truth of God's word within the walls of the church or within the life of the church. And it's because of this reason that the body of Christ is distinctive from other groups and gatherings. We are different because the truth of the word of God impacts us individually that that we may live, it says, putting away. He says, so put away. The idea that Peter's getting at here is when he says put away, he's saying, take off the old clothes, put them away, and put on the new clothes. Put away these things. We throw aside, he gives... A few traits here. He says, we throw aside the old garments of malice, that is wickedness, and then the dishonesty of deceit, hypocrisy. The, the Greek word for hypocrisy is actually actor. It's, this, it's a word we get actor from. Isn't that fitting? Like a hypocrite is somebody who puts on this outward facade, but they're not really that way. It says, put off or put away hypocrisy, put away envy. Let's define envy. Envy isn't just wanting what somebody else has. It's wanting what somebody else has, and you don't want them to have it in addition to that. I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. What an ugly spirit, huh? I mean, because there's a lot of things that people have that I'd like to have, but I don't wish that they don't have the thing. Lastly, he says, put away slander. What does slander mean? Slander is basically just talking smack that's not true. Speaking untruths about somebody. Or maybe you don't know the full truth, but you're just, you're just talking about them in an ugly way. It's not good. Slander has no place in the life of the church. And a healthy church cleans these things up, and a healthy church does not tolerate that type of behavior. Because the church is to be distinctive, set apart, there's no, there's no room for, for wickedness. There's no, there's no room for dishonesty. You see, all of these traits are, are dishonest in, in nature. Deceit, hypocrisy, acting like something you're not, envy, slander. They all have dishonesty interwoven in them. And it's because we are craving the truth of the Word of God that we live in light of the truth, right? The, the truth is kind of radiating out from us that we have no room for dishonest actions like these, especially, family, in the life of 
the church should be different here. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, uh, 17, and then we'll skip to 19 to 24. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, But that is not the way you learned in Christ. My version has an exclamation point there. He says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As we embrace Jesus as a church, we are actively putting away the old self. We're putting the old, dirty garments away. They're not going in the closet. They're going in the bonfire. And we're putting on the new self. And we receive the new self through the instruction of the Word of God, the sharpening of God's people gathering together and fellowshipping and sharpening each other. Here Paul says, because of the truth of Jesus, put off your old ways, your old self, your old clothes, and put on the truth. Put on the new self. As we crave and grow in the truth of the Word of God, it spills out then into our living. Truthful living then impacts the relationships around us and primarily our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, our church family. Again, this place should be distinctive from other places. It should look different than your workplace. If we, if we rewind back into Acts uh, chapter 2, if you, 2.42 is a, a very well-known passage where we get a glimpse of, of the early church. It says that they gathered together daily in the temple courts and, and they sold and they had everything in common so that people were without need. It says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How can envy and slander and deceit exist in an environment where people are saying, you don't have that thing? Well, let me sell my thing and I'll buy you that thing so you can have that. Let me help meet your need. You don't have food? I don't need this extra thing over here. I'm going to sell this and I'm going to go get you food and I'm going to feed you. How can envy exist in that kind of environment? It can't. Oh, that we would be like that church in Acts 2. 42, the next mark of a healthy church is this. A healthy church is a church that is built on the living stone. A healthy church is a church that is built on the living stone. Simply put, a healthy church is built on Jesus. It's built on the firm foundation of Christ. It's built on the good news about Jesus and what he has done 
Peter says this in verses 4 to 7, the beginning part of 7. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Peter here is reminding the church about who they are built upon. Who is their foundation? We've been singing a closing song in our gatherings over the last month or so, talking about what our feet are on the rock, right? Our feet are on the rock. You guys got the melody in your head. The tune's going right now. In the same way, our church is built on the living stone. And what Peter is getting at here is that the living stone is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The living stone, or or, or refers to him as the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone in ancient construction. Okay, the whole building is built with the cornerstone as the foundation and the guiding stone for the rest of the construction. It's built up. Peter also in this passage grants encouragement. He, pause, he pauses in the middle of his statement to remind the readers that the, that the living stone was rejected by men. But in the sight of God, he says it was chosen and precious. He then says this, he goes, you yourselves are like living stones. Peter here now connects our standing on, in the cornerstone that is Jesus, standing on the cornerstone that is Jesus, will also lead, we are connected to him in this way, hear this, it will also lead as true followers of Jesus that we will be rejected by many. In other words, Christian, expect to have pushback against your faith. As you bring the good news of the gospel, as you bring scripture to people, they might be like, you really believe in that stuff? Has anybody ever said that to you? You really believe in that? We can expect the same type of treatment that Jesus received. And so Peter here is encouraging this early church that in context, in historical context, was was persecuted, they were struggling They were contending for the faith. And he says, you're connected to the cornerstone that struggled with the same things. Sometimes, like, in parenting, I've found this. When I I meet with with another parent and you're walking through stuff in life and they're like, hey, man, that's just stuff you're going to go through. It's okay. We're with you. We're connected in that way. It's the same way. Peter's pointing back to Jesus. Hey, you're just, you're living the life like your Savior. You're going to struggle just like he does at times. And I, I feel like there's comfort in knowing that. Okay, thanks for giving me the truth. I can expect this. He says that we're built up on this cornerstone like, like living stones ourselves. He says building a spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering acceptable spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Family, we don't call this a sanctuary. It's just a a room we gather in to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We could gather out in the parking lot because the church is this. It's the body. It's you and me. We're building it. He says here, we're building up a spiritual house. 
And so when the church assembles together, we're together. Thank goodness, because we've got a basketball gym on the floor, right? But we're getting a shiny new stage, so that'll help us. It says we're building a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering acceptable spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. And then he says this. Here's, here's the good news. He says, those who believe in the cornerstone will not, these are the words that he uses, will not be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. When you actually go back into Isaiah 28, 16, Isaiah says it this way. He says, you will not be put to haste. I find that interesting, that word interesting. Because if you're in haste with something, you're in a hurry, you're moving quickly. In a sense, I think what the picture that we're getting that is in Jesus, we have rest. You will not be put to shame. We, we don't have to carry the shame of our sin anymore. It was, it was placed on the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago. And so we can rest. We're not in haste anymore. We are resting in the righteousness of Jesus. The cornerstone, the living stone, and us, church, as living stones, we're being built on this firm foundation of Christ that we can rest upon him that we can rest upon his work. And so I encourage you this morning to remember the gospel about Jesus. Remember the good news about Jesus. And as we remember the gospel, we also are given a mission as a church to preach the good news to those who are in unbelief. It brings me to my third point. A healthy church is a church that makes Jesus unignorable. A healthy church is a church that makes Jesus unignorable. The elders, deacons, staff leaders, church leaders here will strive in everything that we say and do to make Jesus unignorable. Jesus is the center of our church. Making much about Jesus is the center of our church, and that should spill out into our lives that we are living lives that make Jesus unignorable to the outside world, the looking world around us. Especially in, in our worship gathering, we want to make much about Christ. We want to proclaim, he'll say later, we want to proclaim his excellencies. We want to make much about Jesus. Our lives, family, should make much about Jesus. We strive to make him unignorable. Peter says this in the second half of verse 7 to verse 8. He says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone he says this, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Notice here that, that Peter refers now to, to the cornerstone as this, as, as a stone of stumbling. Did you notice that word there? It says a rock of, of offense. Why would he say that about Jesus? 
The center part of the, of the gospel is, is this. It's a reality that we are fallen and sinful, and any work that we bring before God apart from Christ is not good enough. It doesn't measure up to God's perfection and righteousness. If someone tells you, you're not good enough, and they leave it at that, that's an offensive message, isn't it? You sit in the classroom and you have a teacher tell you, hey, you're not good enough. Is that offensive? That's offensive. And so a lot of people, when they hear, when they hear the gospel and they say, hey, your, your good works aren't good enough, they just stop there and they shut their ears and I don't want to hear anymore because you're offending me. But they don't hear the rest of what the gospel is. Paul tells us from Ephesians, he says, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. And he goes on to connect it now to Jesus. By faith in Christ, you can be raised in your life. You can, you can have life breathed into you. You can be saved. Your work isn't good enough. But the work of Christ is good enough. And faith in his finished work saves. Peter just said, for those who believe, you will not be put to shame. You have rest in the righteousness of Jesus. God's own people, you read through the Gospels, God's own people, the Israelites, by and large, rejected their Savior. It's why we get this picture of Jesus weeping as he looks out over Jerusalem. But as God always does, he saved a remnant. That the truth of Jesus lives on through. These faithful Jews spread the gospel, that is the the stumbling block that is Jesus, all throughout the Roman Empire. And hear this truth. World history pivots on his life. Time is ordered because of Jesus. World history forever changed because of the gospel, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the fact that he is raised from the dead, that he is alive. And this section gets at the core of our mission as Christians that we would set forth before the world the stumbling block of the gospel. Simply put, that we would preach the good news about Jesus Christ and what he has done. That we wouldn't add to it other stumbling blocks that make people trip on the way to the cross. That we would clearly proclaim the gospel. That no one that ever enters this church or is invited to this church feels that they have to clean everything up before they come walking through those doors to hear the gospel proclaimed. That they can come, come as you are and hear about our loving Savior. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24. He goes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to to save those who believe. 
It says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Working through some of Paul's other writings, we we should never be ashamed of this stumbling block. We should never be ashamed of the good news about Jesus. He says this in Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is sufficient to save for those who believe. And so we want to strive in this manner. We want to contend in this manner as, as a local church that, that we may never be a church that preaches more than the gospel, that we add to the gospel, and also we can do the opposite, that we never preach less than the gospel. That we with pure hearts proclaim the excellencies about Jesus and salvation through Christ alone. He is the only one that can save dead and dying sinners. And so the challenge to us, family, is that we make Jesus unignorable to our families, in our workplaces, and in our communities. Finally, a healthy church is a church Point number four, a church that embraces its true identity. A healthy church is a church that embraces its true identity. We have, we have a lot of identity issues in our culture right now. We want to be identified by every other title than the title that we should be striving to be identified, which is followers of Jesus. Do you see it in the world right now? Look around. Everybody wants to be known as this, or known as this, or known by this. Our identity in this church, in this body of Christ, is this. We are Christians. Whatever background you came from, whatever sin you've struggled with, Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are identified as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Peter gives us our identity in verses 9 to 10. He says, but you are, this is just beautiful, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, hear this, this is what you are in Jesus, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, this is where you were, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's beautiful. Peter's not done yet. He says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have mercy. That's your identity, follower of Jesus. Simply put, through Jesus, you are somebody. Remember back to the the bully in in grade school? He said, you're just a nobody. 
I'm a child of God. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. That's my identity. And Peter here actually identifies you with titles that were given to the Israelites. Some of these titles may sound familiar because we just preached through the book of Exodus. Back in Exodus 19.6, these titles were given to the Israelites. You, church, through the, the perfect and obedient Israel, that is, Jesus, our Scripture teaches us, you're through faith engrafted into the family of God. Your identity has been changed to one with Christ through faith in His work. You are called then a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession. And you were given a purpose. Here Peter says, this is your purpose, to proclaim the excellencies about Jesus. That's our purpose. Why? Why would we proclaim these excellencies? Peter tells us, because you were called from darkness into his marvelous light. What other response is there other than that we would proclaim the excellencies of a Savior that brought us out of darkness and shine a light? We once were not, and now we are. We once were outside of his mercy, and now we are in his mercy. Our identity has been changed. And so we no longer approach life with the titles assigned to us by the world, but as the title of Christian, a follower of Jesus. Revelation 7, uh, verses 9 to 12, grants us a, a glimpse of embracing your true identity in perfection. No longer are we known with titles like pastor or minister or mortgage officer or retired folk or doctors or nurses or mothers or fathers or Americans or Hispanics or Europeans or Africans, but rather we are known as the family of God, the body of Christ, the church. Gathered together in one assembly. And and then John gives us this vision in Revelation 7. He gives us this vision of what it will be like when people from all walks of life are gathered together, proclaiming the excellencies about Jesus. He says this, After this I looked, and behold, what? A great multitude that no one could number. From where? Every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. Okay, the old self was put off. They're clothed now in white white robes representing the righteousness of Jesus covering them. It says, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying this, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So be it. Amen. 
Do you think they're proclaiming the excellencies about Jesus there? And so family, I want to invite you in this morning. We're practicing for that moment every time we gather. We're practicing for this vision from Scripture. So don't come to this moment lightly. As we gather to respond to the gospel, be mindful of the marks of the healthy church that we drew from this passage this morning. That we put away those things that hinder a truthful life in light of not the lies that the world feeds us, but in light of the truth of the Word of God. That we build our life on the gospel of Jesus. Church, that we embrace our mission to make Jesus unignorable. That the light shines so brightly in this place that people can't avoid it. My heart's desire as your pastor is that people would come in here and they would see the love of Christ. That they would not see deceitfulness or hypocrisy or envy or slander or malice, but they would come in there and say, those people love one another well. And so we embrace our mission to to make Jesus unignorable. And finally, church, we grab hold of our true identity in Christ. You're not titled as drunkard. You're not titled as adulterer. You're not titled as drug addict. You're not titled as liar. You're not a deceiver. You are no longer a sinner, but rather you are a Christian. You are this. You're a child of God. Hear this title. You are a son or daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I invite you this morning, proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. Proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. I want to invite our band to come forward.